Hi, this is the Poetry Corner with Dr. Timothy Bartell at the St. Constantine School. Today we're going to be talking about a poem by a contemporary poet who is, in my opinion, one of the inheritors of the great ecstatic formal tradition of poets like uh, John Donne and Gerard Manley Hopkins. This poet is Christian Wyman. Christian Wyman is still living. He was born in 1966. For a while, he was the editor of Poetry Magazine, which is the premier poetry publication in America. He stepped down in 2013 to teach at the Yale School of Music. Wyman has had kind of a tumultuous last decade. He himself tells the story better than I could, but he was not part of the church for a large part of his adult life, but was diagnosed with cancer and came back to the church and kind of rediscovered his faith. His collection, Every Riven Thing, uh, which was published in 2010, is a collection of poems that is a lot about faith and doubt and pain. And really, I think in it, we get to see Wyman struggling with both his newfound rededication to theism and to Christianity, but also his newfound knowledge of his possible death. Uh, as far as I know, uh, he's in better health these days. He's gone into remission. But it's interesting to read a poet who is really facing ultimate questions, not just abstractly, not just in his spare time, uh, but as someone who is upon the brink of death uh, and who is writing poetry fiercely and formally in the face of that. The poem I want to look at is actually the title poem uh, from Every Riven Thing. And it's a poem that really bears looking at on the page. I will try and talk through what we see on the page because it's a very subtle and nuanced poem. I'm going to read it all the way through and then I will talk through it. Every Riven Thing by Christian Wyman. God goes, belonging to every riven thing he's made sing his being simply by being the thing it is. Stone and tree and sky, man who sees and sings and wonders why God goes. Belonging to every riven thing he's made means a storm of peace. Think of the atoms inside the stone. Think of the man who sits alone, trying to will himself into a stillness where God goes belonging. To every riven thing he's made, there is given one shade shaped exactly to the thing itself. Under the tree, a darker tree. Under the man, the only man to see, God goes belonging to every riven thing. He's made the things that bring him near, made the mind that makes him go, a part of what man knows, apart from what man knows, God goes belonging to every riven thing he's made. Now you could probably tell that the line, God goes belonging to every riven thing he's made, was repeated in the poem. In fact, it's repeated five times. But each time it's repeated, it's punctuated differently. The first time, it's punctuated, God goes, comma, belonging to every riven thing he's made, sing his being simply by being the thing it is. So we have God goes, 
which is a discrete clause set off by a comma. And then we have the rest of the line, belonging to every riven thing he's made, continue on grammatically into every riven thing he's made, sing his being simply by being the thing it is. Now, if you're familiar with Gerard Manley Hopkins, you'll immediately see a Hopkinsian language here. We have God who is creating and setting in motion beings who are singing their being. Hopkins in As Kingfishers Catch Fire says, each thing does one thing and the same, goes itself, myself, it speaks and spells, deals out that being, indoors, each one dwells. Now, grammatically, that doesn't make a lot of sense, but there's this idea of the being of a thing being sung out of and dealt out of those things that God has made. Here, Wyman is playing with that tradition, but he's playing with it in almost a tighter formal structure than Hopkins gives us. Because he has this line, God goes belonging to every riven thing he's made, that he's going to make, say, at least five different things throughout the course of his poem. The first time he uses it, we have God goes, comma, belonging to every riven thing he's made, sing his being, simply by being the thing it is. So that line is first used to communicate two things. First of all, God goes. This goes is ambiguous, and I think a little, a little dark, certainly a little darker than Hopkins' language in his poem that Wyman is referencing. God goes. Go, of course, is a very basic verb. It could mean he proceeds or he proceeds to do. But there's also a sense, especially in Wyman's whole collection, of the absence of God, and the absence of God as an important element in the life of a human, an important element in the life of a believer in one's relationship with God. So in the first two words of this poem, we have this double sense of God is proceeding on toward action, but one of those actions might in fact be leaving. God goes. We see him leave. But in the next part of the line, belonging to every riven thing he's made. He belongs to the things that he makes, even when he leaves. And there might even be a sense here that even his absence belongs to those things. It's interesting that the line isn't God goes belonging to everything he's made. If that was the line, we might say, oh, isn't that nice? God belongs to all the things he's made. No, it's to every riven thing. And that word riven, maybe even onomatopoetically, cuts a gash in this line. It's every riven thing. It's everything that has been split or cut. Wyman himself, of course, we know, is dealing with disease in these poems. But riven could also mean spiritually riven, emotionally riven. There is a high level of what we would call suggestivity um, in this, uh, or suggestiveness in this poem. Riven invites us to say, what is riven? How is it riven? What rove it? God goes belonging to every riven thing he's made, sing his being simply by being the thing it is stone and tree and sky, 
man who sees and sings and wonders why. That's the whole first stanza. That last line almost seems a little too easy. It's the kind of line that one might expect in a children's song. Man who sees and sings and wonders why. And the moment that we think, oh, that was too easy. It's very, very regular in its meter. It's very sing-songy. It's very simple in its language. Wyman has copped out at the end of this stanza. He's given us some difficult language, difficult to puzzle out language, subjective language, and he got tired and he's now saying, yeah, I'll just give him a nice line. Man sees, sings, wonders why. Ah, but there is no period after wonders why. In fact, we are to read grammatically man who sees and sings and wonders why as leading directly into the beginning of the next stanza. So we should read it grammatically, man who sees and sings and wonders why God goes, period. This is not man who sees and sings and wonders lots of things. It's man who sees and sings, very positive things, and wonders why God leaves. All of a sudden, Wyman, from going from that last rather easy line back into his repeated line, and he gives us a period instead of a comma after the word goes, he kind of devastates us here. Man seemed to be carefree and joyous and thankful. And all of a sudden, what he's wondering about is the absence of God. This is enacted over the line break, over the stanza break, and indicated through careful punctuation. It's one thing I love about Wyman. Wyman's lines wax and wane in their length. These aren't all lines of iambic pentameter like we would find in someone like Jeffrey Hill. They're not all lines of iambic tetrameter like we might find in Emily Dickinson, but they are so carefully metered and so carefully written to the point where the difference between a comma and a period can be the difference between a hopeful description of God, and a devastating description of God. Let's look at the second stanza. Man sees and sings and wonders why God goes, period. Belonging to every riven thing he's made means a storm of peace. So now belonging is the subject of the sentence in this repeated line. Belonging, comma, to every riven thing he's made means a storm of peace. So this is a statement not about God's belonging, but the experience of belonging. I assume that there's an implication that this is belonging to God, but it could also be belonging in any sense, belonging to a community, belonging to another person. Belonging means a storm of peace is the main clause of this sentence. That storm of peace is a great example of a simple paradox. Belonging means peace. That sounds nice. Belonging means a storm of peace. A storm of peace? That's oxymoronic. How can peace be a storm? We're going to have more oxymorons in a moment. Think of the atoms inside the stone. Think of the man who sits alone trying to will himself into a stillness where God goes belonging. So that trying to will himself into a stillness where, once again, doesn't end in a period. We're supposed to read it grammatically into the beginning of a third stanza where we have God goes belonging 
period. So we have atoms inside a stone. Atoms are kind of both peaceful and also stormy. Uh, I think of the electron cloud that you learn about in uh, high school chemistry class. There's a storm around each atom, but each atom, especially in a stone, seems to be making up a very still thing. There's a paradox there that in things that are still, like stones, there are many, many microscopic storms. But of course, he doesn't want us to just think about the natural world. He wants us to think about man. Think of the man who sits alone, trying to will himself into a stillness. That's another slightly paradoxical description. Man is trying to be still. He's putting forth great effort into stillness, trying to will himself into a stillness where God goes belonging. All of a sudden, belonging has been taken and put with the words God goes. It's the first time we get those together as a grammatical unit. All of a sudden, God is proceeding to belong, or God is going to belong, in this stillness that man is trying to create. All of a sudden, we have a description that will be very familiar to anyone who's read monastic or mystical literature, where the practice of the monk, the practice of the mystic, is to still one's mind, is to still one's soul, is to gather together one's outward senses and bring them into an interior stillness where, as Wyman says, God may come and belong. God goes belonging to that stillness if man can will himself into it. There's a contingency there. If man can find stillness, or achieve stillness, perhaps God will belong there. This is, I think, a hopeful note, but not necessarily an overly cheery note. The words God goes for the last two stanzas have been used primarily to denote God's absence, and here we have it them being used along with the word belonging to denote the possibility of God's presence. This, once again, and I don't want to repeat myself too much, but I feel like I need to keep marveling at Wyman's ability. Wyman is enacting these movements of thought from God's absence to God's possible presence through changing the punctuation in a line, but not changing the line at all when it comes to word order, let alone words. This is daring. This is a feat of formal daring, grammatical daring, that we don't often see contemporary poets do. And it's to Wyman's credit that he trusts his words and his punctuation enough to communicate this. This says to me that Wyman has been playing with punctuation and wording for many, many years and is now showing us what punctuation can do not just to meaning, but to theological meaning. Not just to theological meaning, but to a narrative of how we experience God, both God's absence and God's possible presence. And he's not done yet. Trying to will himself into a stillness where God goes belonging, period. To every riven thing he's made, there is given one shade shaped exactly to the thing itself. Under the tree, a darker tree, under the man, the only man to see, 
God goes belonging to every riven thing. So that God goes belonging to every riven thing is the beginning of the fourth stanza. So here we have a meditation on shadows in this third stanza. To every riven thing he's made, there is given one shade shaped exactly to the thing itself. Under the tree, a darker tree. Under the man, the only man to see, God goes belonging to every riven thing. I get a Peter Pan sense from this. I know that's sort of dragging in something that's not necessarily implied here. But this idea that the shadow of a thing, especially of a human or a tree, really any riven thing, is itself able to experience. Under the man, the only man to see, God goes belonging to every riven thing. The only man under the man, the only man meaning the shadow, I think is being implied, the shadow is what can see that God goes belonging to every riven thing. Here we have, I think, the first perhaps grammatically complete idea of all of what Wyman is trying to say. God goes belonging to every riven thing. These things, these things that are riven, maybe emotionally, spiritually, physically, maybe even the rivenness between the human and the shadow of the human, can be seen by the shadow. This, this is strange. This, this is almost fanciful. This is what can happen in a poem where all of a sudden the poet decides, you know what, I'm going to lend to an inanimate object or to a non-rational object the power of sight or reason. Uh, I'll go along with it. He's been subtle and careful enough that I'm willing to accept, okay, perhaps my shadow is the only thing that can see that God goes belonging to every riven thing. After that, God goes belonging to every riven thing, we have a period, and then we move into the fourth and uh, penultimate stanza. He's made the things that bring him near, made the mind that makes him go, a part of what man knows, apart from what man knows. And now we go into the single line, fifth stanza. God goes belonging to every riven thing he's made. There's no punctuation except for a period at the end of that line. So let's think about this final thought. He's made the things that bring him near. Ah, good. Wyman is sort of opening up his hands and and saying, yes, yes, I have been implying that God can be near and God can be far. This is about God's presence and absence. He's made the things that bring him near, made the mind that makes him go. Uh, this is just a brilliant bringing back of this word go. Go, of course, means to, to start working, to proceed, as we've talked about, to proceed into some action. But go also means to leave. Um, it's hard for me, especially as a uh, someone who teaches modern philosophy sometimes, to not read this line, he's made the mind that makes him go, as a description of the modern philosophical period that tries to puzzle out whether God exists or not and ends up in the end making him leave, ushering God off stage metaphysically. He... God makes the mind that makes him leave. All of a sudden, there's this implication that the human mind can move God somehow. 
Now, of course, I think we would say when Nietzsche says God is dead, he's not actually causing God to die, but he's, he's saying that the idea of God has somehow been killed, Nietzsche says, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, here, Wyman is more precise. It's the mind of man that has ushered God off the stage of metaphysics. A part of what man knows, apart from what man knows, God goes belonging to every riven thing he's made. This is the last full sentence. It takes up the last three lines. And I like, I like it because it seems to confirm, yes, we do now know, partly, in part, that God goes belonging to every riven thing he's made. But it's also apart from what we know. There's a large aspect of God's belonging to his creation that we don't understand. I want to go back in conclusion to the second line of this fourth stanza. He's made the things that bring him near. Things here can bring God near. Man's mind can make God go. This is language that, lest I sound uh, trite, uh, I, I want to I call sacramental or incarnational language. That, that phrase is used, I think overused, about a lot of art and poetry. But pretty technical definition of the sacramental would be physical objects that somehow communicate God's presence or grace to us. God has made things, objects, that bring him near, through which he can encounter his creation, through which he can encounter even those minds that he made that try and usher him out of existence. So there's this, there's this uneasy, but I think very honest, sacramental language and also atheistic language right next to each other in the in the fourth stanza. He's made the things that bring him near, made the mind that makes him go. The objects of earth, what are earlier called stone and tree and sky, the objects of earth have a nearness to God that the mind of man seems to reject. That's both ho hopeful and sad. Through punctuation, through careful rhyme, you notice that there is rhyme throughout this poem. Wyman has led us to theologically reflect on the presence of God, the absence of God, and maybe even the paradox that God is often present in those places where we don't look for him, stone and tree and sky, and often has been kicked out of those places where we would most look for him, the mind of man. God goes belonging to every riven thing he's made. These are words that Wyman has got a lot of mileage out of. Every time I read this poem, I think I see new dimensions of this. Wyman trusts his language and his punctuation formally to the point where he has repeated something that perhaps elsewhere we would see as didactic. Uh, God belongs to all things. Um, that might seem like a cute thing to say uh, or maybe an austere thing to say. Well, God is everywhere, so watch out, kids. Uh, no, Wyman wants to use a phrase that could easily be seen as overly didactic and push it to all its grammatical and theological limits. I think we find that it has not been totally pushed to its limits. There's more things that this could say. Theological language too often is treated as an open and shut case, I think, especially in poetry. When poets start talking about God, 
modern readers often say, oh, ho-hum, I've heard all of this in Sunday school. No, Wyman says, hear it again. Place periods and commas and dashes throughout it until you have fully exercised your own limits of theological contemplation and understanding. This has been the Poetry Corner. Thank you very much.